you like to open your Bibles, we'll be in John chapter 12. Always wondered what it was like to be Pat. <laughs> I don't know. I've seen what they do at his sister's get togethers. Twenty pounds of boiled shrimp. <clears throat> I'd like to look uh John chapter twelve. We'll begin with verse one. Really I'd like to focus Verses 23 and 24, it's a very uh, famous passage if you would use uh, such terminology. We know that uh, even the unbelievers uh, are quite familiar with this passage uh, of John, just uh, accounting the details of Christ uh, right before he is to go to the cross. And one of the last times that we see uh, direct speech of Christ uh, noted in the book of John, and uh, it's, uh, with a great burden that I, I pray that we receive this passage today and and see from it some things that maybe we tend to quickly look over and understand some things of it that we don't typically uh, understand as we read so quickly over passages because we we look at it for its historical content and context. And often we miss the spiritual truth of what Jesus is saying. Uh, even though he has yet to go to the cross, you'll have to forgive me for bumping this thing. So we'll start uh, with the first verse. It says, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him... A supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii? given to the poor people now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor but because he was a thief and as he had the money box he used to pilfer what was put into it therefore jesus said let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial for you always have the poor with you but you do not always have me the large crowd of the jews then learned that jesus he was there and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. On the next day, 
The large crowd who had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, a daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming seated on a donkey's coat. These things his disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him, so that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So that, <clears throat> so the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. Then these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life uh, in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. We'll stop there. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, as we open your word this morning, Lord, we pray that you know, those things that we have seen so many times past in reading this passage would come to mind, Lord, that we would remember uh, those things that are a testimony unto the person and work of Jesus Christ. Lord, but that ultimately uh, we pray that today there would be a new understanding, a deeper understanding, a more intimate knowledge of this Christ in whom uh, you have used to save the world. The righteousness of God presented in the form of flesh that man may be reconciled to you. God, is a marvelous uh, victory that we have in Jesus. It's an eternal truth that we have a Savior who is prophet, priest, and king, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, the only sacrifice for the remission of sins, Lord, and we thank you for him. Uh, we pray that our Savior, Jesus Christ, be exalted today, that you, Jesus, would receive the glory and the honor uh, like you have never received from man or the recognition for such a redemption as you have provided. Lord, and that your Spirit uh, would be well pleased to do your will in making the children of God to look like the Son of God. Lord, applying the Word uh, most liberally, Lord, without holding anything back. That is our prayer today, Lord, that you would meet uh, the need of our heart in revealing the truth of Jesus Christ. Lord, that we would remain in a lifestyle of repentance. And for those who have yet to, to do so, Lord, that you would even now uh, call them unto yourself uh, as the text bears out. Lord, that we would give to you all of the recognition and the glory and the honor uh, and the exaltation for salvation for Man cannot achieve this on his own. Uh, God, we pray that you would receive our worship today and that you would be 
well pleased by it, Lord, and that we would be sanctified uh, through it and in it for your glory and for your glory alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I want to begin uh, sort of with those verses leading up uh, as quickly as I know how, beginning in uh, verse 1. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover. Jesus, we know, of course, is the ultimate fulfillment and the embodiment and the true only uh, Passover lamb. And yet this is six days before we're closing in on the time of Christ's seizure uh, from the garden and Christ giving himself up on the cross. Uh, there will, where sins will be paid for by this lamb of God. And he says he came to this place, Bethany, where Lazarus was. Where Lazarus was and where Lazarus is still remaining. Remember, this is Lazarus who had passed away, as the text uh, soon reminds us. He is there. He had raised him from the dead. And that is uh, the text that John gives. We know that in chapter 20, verse 31, John reveals to us that the purpose of his writing these many things, these many accounts of Jesus and his miracles, is so that believing in this Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, we may have life in his name. But uh, as he has already uh, told us that this is Lazarus who is raised from the dead, we'll quickly see that uh, the purpose of John's gospel is reaching its climax and that no more will he have to tell of the miracles of Christ uh, leading up to the cross, but he is about to reveal what Christ is doing in going to the cross. The ultimate revelation uh, of a Savior who is a propitiation is coming to mind, and these things like uh, raising men from the dead will soon be uh, minuscule in regard to what Christ is doing on the cross. Uh, we, we begin to see that even Lazarus being raised from the dead, uh, as we reach verse 23 and verse 24 this morning, is something to put behind us and to see the full glory of Christ as he is glorified uh, in his death, burial, and resurrection. We begin to see something better than Lazarus being raised temporarily from the dead because we know that Lazarus, of course, would die again. We're, we're about to see Jesus the Christ going to the cross that men everywhere uh, may be raised from the dead to eternal life. And that is much better than what Lazarus experienced coming forth from the grave. That's uh, much better than what the paralytic man uh, and the blind man and all of those that Jesus would heal is much better than what they had seen, though it was a glimpse, a foreshadow of this that was to come. And now uh, we are almost at the moment. It says Jesus had raised him from the dead, so they made him a supper. The best way they could repay Jesus in visiting again, they're, they're making him a supper. And he comes and he's attending. This was the man that uh, Jesus loved, it's saying, a friend a true friend of Jesus. And so they made supper. Martha was there serving. We know she wasn't too happy about that because her sister was doing something else. And here it says uh, Lazarus was reclining at the table with him, him who had raised him from the dead. He was supping with Jesus. What, what we have here is a beginning picture of what the church should be like in recognizing that Jesus has as well raised us from the dead. Shouldn't we be feasting and reclining and resting upon our Savior? Shouldn't we be not worried uh, simply with the preparations of the meal? Uh, though it, I, I don't discount what Martha was doing and serving, but the rest of these men weren't so much worried about that. They were worried about entertaining and being with this Jesus, the Christ. For the true meal, the true feast was indeed prepared by him. Uh, and this is 
uh, somewhat subtle, but though evident in this picture as these are reclining with Jesus at the table, uh, being made ready to uh, partake of this supper. And yet uh, here we have them uh, in the presence of the very Christ before he is given to the cross. It says Mary took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Don't you know that after Christ uh, would be buried in this perfume, of course, he tells keep the rest for his burial, that forever, as long as these men and women who are present at this last uh, supper here in, in chapter 12, don't you know that the, the smell of nard would always remind them of Christ? That from that point forward, they wouldn't be thinking about, man, that was $300 perfume, or that was this, or that was that. They would constantly be reminded as they were in the very moment as the house was filled with the aroma that was no longer nard, but was with the aroma of the Savior who was in their presence. Remember this, the nard was always there. It was always in, uh, in the bottle, if you would. But they didn't smell it every day. But what they smelled today was the nard because the Savior had come. And what was so sweet and sitting on a shelf and what was so expensive and valuable now becomes even more precious, even more valuable, even more sweet a savor because it is synonymous with the Christ who has come and who has really prepared a feast for the entire church. Christ who has prepared his body and his obedience and his sacrifice uh, that we may not only enjoy the fragrance of heaven but everything that God has to offer, the entire inheritance of God, not just some vial of perfume, but now we will share in his kingdom and his glory and his righteousness. And all of these things are really just, uh, just for a moment revealed and foreshadowed in what is happening at this meal with Christ before his crucifixion. Uh, she does this, she brings the perfume, uh, uses her hair to apply it, and then we are told about this Judas Iscariot. One of his disciples, it says, a, a follower of Christ, can you imagine, who was, as the text says, already intending to betray Jesus. We often like to think that, uh, we often give credit uh, in other circumstances to Satan as, well, he just, in the moment, grabbed us and caused us to sin and yet here the text of scripture says this is judas iscariot a disciple of christ a witness to all these things remember now these people are coming uh, throughout the book of john throughout uh, all of the synoptic gospels they're coming to jesus because they've heard of individual miracles here and there and here is judas who has seen many of these things and the whole time he's intending to betray jesus it says his intention was that according to his nature and that was to sin to revile against God, to hold wickedness in his heart, as David would declare, to sin and to sin against thee alone. That is the revelation of man's depravity in one such as Judas, and even in every man until he is saved by the Christ. A wicked heart, a depraved nature, that is what one battles. And it says here, he was intending to betray Jesus. And because he was intending to betray Jesus, he didn't mind if he stole from Jesus. That is what sin is. 
not just Judas's sin, but your sin and my sin. We are stealing from Jesus. We're robbing Jesus of his glory. We're robbing Jesus of his possessions. We're robbing Jesus of his blessings, of his uh, right to be worshipped and authority and control. It's idolatry, essentially. Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii? He was down to the penny, uh, sure what this was worth. He said, why was it not taken and sold and given to the poor? The Bible reveals why he said this, verse 6. He said this not because he was concerned about the poor. He had no care for anyone but himself. Do you see the self-righteousness of Judas is, as portrayed in verse 6? The nature of this man is revealed to us. He's concerned not about the poor, not about anyone but himself. He was wanting as a thief for the money to be placed in this box that he carried. The text says that he was used to pilfering through it, taking what he wished, what he thought he could get away with. Again, isn't that a picture of sin? Especially Sin in the life of a professing believer. We're not so willing to do all of those sins that the unbelieving world uh, is so enthralled in and, and caught up with. We're not willing to do some of those. But we are willing to do what we think that we can get away with. What's okay. What we think may pass by unseen. And that is what he is doing. Nevertheless, fully guilty. Standing condemned without this blood of christ to be applied and that is the real truth verse 7 says therefore jesus said let her alone notice that the text says therefore jesus at this point uh though in the flesh of man uh, has put aside certain qualities and attributes of god uh, one of them being his omniscience he is uh, from the indications of the text, aware that this man had been stealing. But he says, therefore, knowing that this was the intent uh, of Judas, let this woman alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. What he is revealing is he is revealing the sin of Judas's heart because he says, as soon as I am gone, uh, Judas will have what he has always wanted. Uh, but when I am gone, this woman, Mary, will come back and she will still be willing to give and she will still recognize Jesus as the Christ, as the King. She will still be serving Jesus long after I am gone. Or so it appears. Judas, however, does not have any of these intentions. It says, For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. I'm here for but a time he's uh, relaying the fact that we'll see in verse 23 that the hour has drawn near and more importantly that he is going to uh, ascend into heaven and even worse for Judas that he will not always have Christ he is with Christ but for a temporal time he will not have the Savior he will uh, indeed face the punishment of his sin the wages the death and hell being absent from Christ. This is not only a revelation unto the estate of Judas, but every unbeliever, for they thought that they had the king. Why Christ was in the flesh and engaging in his earthly ministry for 
about three and a half years. They thought they had the Messiah, and the reality is that those who may have thought they had him would soon lose him. Those who truly had him would never lose him. It says the large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there. They learned that Jesus was present, that he was near. It says they came. And here's where uh, the story tells uh, the condition of man's heart. The very condition that we've seen in John chapter 5 and John chapter 6. Uh, as Jesus deals with multitudes and coming for fishes and loaves. What we see is it says uh, that they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus. We talked about this last week. They're coming not only to see Jesus, but they want to see Lazarus, a byproduct of Jesus' goodness, of Jesus' miracle working. Here's just a recipient of God's grace. This is sort of like uh, with the veneration of Mary, the Roman Catholic Church. We want to uh, talk about this woman, Mary, as if she is something to behold, when in fact there is nothing of the sort. She is simply a testimony of the goodness of God and the grace of God in the life of a sinner. We want to go see uh, this holy land. We want to look for the Ark of the Covenant or Noah's Ark. And uh, Christians everywhere are looking for these historical places and things that Jesus may have touched. And the reality is that it doesn't matter if Jesus has indeed touched the heart, if he has performed his miracle transplantation of removing stone and placing flesh, always looking for something different when we have the best placed before us, and that is Christ. And here is the reality of that, the culmination of all these things. They weren't coming simply for him, but they wanted to see Lazarus. This is he whom Jesus had raised from the dead, but the chief priest planned to put him to death also. They were so irritated at this Jesus that they were going to kill the man that Jesus brought back, as if that could do something. There's no dispute here that Lazarus had been dead. There's no disputing that Christ had brought him back from the dead. Uh, it stands to reason that these men were so consumed with hatred and anger for God that they didn't realize, had they even killed Lazarus again, would it not be just as easy for Christ to bring him back twice? So foolish what we think in anger. We're, in, we're all guilty. We do stupid stuff when we're mad. We make stupid comments and we make little of this man who is Jesus the Christ and his ability. Where we read just a couple weeks ago, all things are possible with him. Yet nevertheless, these men plan to put Lazarus to death. Though death the first time could not hold him. It says, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Simply because Jesus had done something for Lazarus, now they're mad at Lazarus. This is uh, very typical of coveting. We're mad because God has given to someone else. And now in God's giving to Lazarus, not only has he given him life again, I don't know, maybe these men were upset and they thought maybe they would get something from Lazarus' estate, but also they were losing power, they were losing influence because Lazarus was accrediting his raising from the dead with this Jesus, the Christ, and men were leaving these old religious systems, they were turning from them even for a time to look to this Christ to see whether or not he truly be the Son of God. 
They didn't like that because it put them in their proper place lower on the totem pole, if you would. Nevertheless, uh, we arrive at the triumphal entry, we call it. On verse 12, it says, The next day the large crowd who had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him. A large crowd had again assembled because Jesus was there and because he was coming uh, to Jerusalem. There was a feast there. They were celebrating, taking these palm trees, the branches of, go out to meet him, and they began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And this is a prophecy. This is a revelation of who Christ is. Though I would uh, concur that many did not truly believe this. Many did not follow through and would not persevere. says Jesus, uh, really in fulfillment of those things that have been prophesied of him, found the donkey and sat on him as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's coat. This is what the church has to look forward to. And yea, it has already occurred. Our king, our savior, our Messiah has come and he sat on the colt of a donkey. He did all of these things being viewed lowly. I mean, think about this. We, I don't know if you guys have ever been around. You wouldn't think it was so cool for a grown man to ride a colt of a donkey. He can't even get a real horse, a full-grown steed. He's on the colt of a donkey, and this just relays to us the humility of Christ, that he only... Uh, did what the Father would will, taking only what was necessary, relying upon uh, his faith in the Father to provide what he needed uh, and to do what he needed to do. Every provision uh, was a blessing to him. He did not look in the face of this colt and say, you're not big enough for me. What he recognize and what jesus was teaching without ever saying a word here is that whatever the father has provided is good enough matter of fact it is better than good enough it is exceedingly great yet we miss these things and it says verse 16 these things his disciples did not understand at first so quickly they had forgotten the things that they had read but when jesus was glorified when this ends here this particular account when we see Christ going to the cross and he is finally glorified, he is restored to his former glory. Seeing now the equality this man has with God, being very God in the flesh, they remembered that these things were written of him. They remembered, oh yeah, that's right. That was supposed to happen that way. And they had done these things to him. And so the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify about him. There was a continuing testimony of what Christ had done. You know what's sad about this when we read this? This is good stuff here. These people were continuing to testify what Jesus had done. It was enough what he had already done for us to know that this is the Christ. This is my Savior. This is my righteousness. And you know what the modern church does? We need something else. These people were continuing to proclaim, listen, Lazarus came from the grave. This is enough. This is Jesus. And the church says, oh, we need you to do this. Professing church, I would say. The new apostolic 
Reformation and these ultra charismatic types wanting more and more and more proof that Jesus is real. And yet here is uh, a depiction of just one simple thing. I'll say simple because it was easy for Jesus. One thing enough to continue to testify that this is him. This is he who John the Baptist uh, was speaking of. One who is preaching in the wilderness. This is him who Moses was relying upon. Who Abraham was trusting in. Who David recognized was coming after him but greater than. For this reason it says also the people went and met him. They met him because he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And what they didn't know is Jesus was about to do what would cause men everywhere to be raised from the dead to eternal life. They had heard that he had performed the sign, it says. So the Pharisees began to speak amongst one another, and they said, You see that you are not doing any good. It's not working. Look, the world has gone after him. This is so prophetic. Verse 19, the ending there and. In so many ways that the world has gone after him. Uh, It's prophetic in the positive that those who are of the world are now going after Christ in the sense that uh, they have realized that he is the Messiah and that they're coming to him and receiving his eternal blessing and salvation. It's also uh, the negative point of that, that the world is going after him and finding him not, though they are deceiving themselves. It's also a prophetical truth in that Jesus will soon say in this very same chapter that if he be lifted up, that he'll be drawing all men unto himself. There again, a picture of the world coming after him. The only way, the only truth, the only life. And now leading up to verse 23, it says, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. There were some who were recognizing that uh, this way of the Jews Uh, is maybe the only true way this may be the only savior a messiah must be this jesus and they were going to worship at the feast this passover approaching and it says they came to philip who was from Bethsaida of galilee and began to ask him they weren't saying sir uh we want to see jesus you take us they were just asking please can we can we see jesus philip came and told andrew andrew and philip came and told jesus that these Gentiles, these Greeks, were making requests to see you, Jesus. They had heard that Lazarus had been raised. It's time for worship, time for Passover, and they want to meet this man who is the Son of God and whom Jesus calls himself soon, uh, quickly here, the Son of Man. Uh, yet, nevertheless, as the request is made, we see sort of an indirect response as we approach verse 23. It says, Jesus answered them. Philip and Andrew, he answers. Uh, they're coming saying, Jesus, these men, they want to see you, these Greeks. And he answers them saying, not yes, bring them. Not no, hold them back. Not maybe later, make an appointment or any of those things. Indirectly, Jesus responds, the hour has come. The hour has come. The request was to meet Jesus, and uh, he is really 
beginning to reveal to us that the meeting of Christ does not occur simply in the flesh. We don't need to see this figure with eyes, but we need to see him with spiritual eyes. This is what Jesus is pointing to. He's pointing to the fact that uh, not that he will turn these men away, but that these men will soon see Jesus in the fullness of his glory. They won't see a Jesus who simply uh, multiplied a few fishes and loaves. They won't see a, a Jesus who touched uh, a paralytic or touched a blind man or a lame man or a, a, a woman with a blood problem. They won't see any of this, but they will see a Jesus who is God in the flesh. That is what we need to see when we open this passage. Not simply a miracle-working Jesus, although that is wonderful. But if we simply see one Jesus, the Jesus who takes away the sin of the world, that's what we need. It does no good if Jesus raises your neighbor from the dead or if Jesus removes your cancer or he solves your financial issues. What good is it if the man gained the whole world? but loses his own soul. Jesus is saying that with so few less words and so indirectly, such as that the natural man has never and will never comprehend these things. What Jesus is speaking of are those truths in a spiritual realm to which only those whom he is about to make regenerate can understand. Those to whom he would reveal himself it's not what he did for Lazarus. It's not uh, the physical miracles, but it is the uh, physical impossibility that is a spiritual reality, taking the man who knew no sin upon himself, the sin of all of man who would repent, and imputing to them his righteousness. That is what we must see. The hour has come. So many times uh, through almost every chapter up till now, Jesus has repeatedly said, uh, the hour is not yet come. My hour is not here. It is not my time. We begin to see it at the very first uh, feast where he turns the water into wine. My hour is not yet come. He's referencing here a specific time, a specific period, a specific event that was to come. And we've heard about it but not understood it fully. We see that uh, it is so simple for man to forget about this Jesus and what is prophesied about him. They probably have forgot how many times Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. And here he's saying, the hour, here it is. It has come. It is time, a specific time Jesus is talking about. We think about an hour, we call it uh, in America, uh, had his hour in the spotlight. This is sort of true, but uh, to a greater, higher spiritual degree with Jesus. So at this point, his hour has come, his time in the spotlight, the fullness of his glory. Uh, we're going to see Jesus glorified, high and lifted up. And what you will note, unlike any other hour that man will ever see, I would present to you today that this is an hour that has now come and is not going away. I say that because it's, a great spiritual truth. Uh, the Bible tells us that a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day. So is this hour of Christ. I say it so many times, do you, uh, and you guys I know remember uh, when we 
Consider what Scripture says, that today is the day of salvation. You know why that is? Because the hour has come. And yet still is because this is the hour in which Christ has taken upon himself the sin of the world and has pardoned those who have believed in him. And it is still effectual. He's still pardoning. Men are being born today that will be saved. And men tomorrow should he tarry. The effectualness of this hour of Christ is still at hand. A purposeful time, the time of the Father's will and that the redemption of man shall be accomplished. The culmination of his coming in the first place. This is that hour. This is the hour uh, where the leading sequence of events leading up to the death had begun. This is that hour. Says the hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified. It has begun here. He had not directly answered the request, nor did he send the Greeks on their way or discourage their inquiry. We must understand that. That is the, the beautiful part of this. Jesus did not discourage the men from coming. What he did is Jesus continued to the cross so that when they did come, they would come for eternal life. If Jesus had Stopped right there when the hour had come. What would they have seen? A mere man? A man who was able to provide something to eat? Who could take away a physical infirmity? Jesus said, that's not good enough. My hour has come. I don't really need to be hindered with those who are coming just to see a man who has raised another man from the dead if they come soon, they shall see a man who is God, who is taking away sin. Who is not only taking away sin, but who is paying a great debt. Whose blood shed shall be for the remission of sin. And not just one sin, but the entire sin of redeemed mankind. Every sin what we might sometimes foolishly call small and medium and large sins. Great transgressions against God that deserve hell. This is what Jesus is about to take away. He says, the hour has come. And then he gives just another little clue as to who he is. His favorite title for himself. The hour has come for the Son of Man. Remember that Jesus is quickly accused of being the Son of God, right? And he does not deny. In fact, he affirms that he is the Son of God. Here he says he is the Son of Man. He's revealing to us uh, his humanity. He's revealing to us some of the qualities that only God in the flesh could possess. Here, Jesus the Jesus who is allowing you to breathe right now, the Jesus who created you in your mother's womb, the Jesus who created the wood that makes up the pews and the floors and the walls of this building, the Jesus who created the state of Alabama, who created the United States, the world, and everything in it, this very Jesus says, I'm the Son of Man. He's identifying with man whom he is soon to reconcile to God. The likeness of man, this Christ, 
is made. This is the marker of Jesus' humanity here in verse 23. He is uh, revealing to us several things in this title, Son of Man, because we know that people hated Jesus' titles. He revealed to us in this title his humanity. He revealed to us that he was despised by the world, that he came unto his own and his own received him not. He revealed to us with this title that he is uh, the king, the true king of the Jews, the king of all of creation who is hated. He said, just remember, they hated me first. They sought to lay hands on him multiple times leading up to where we are now. This is the Jesus who is revealing in such a title, uh, being man, he is poor, having no place to lay his head, being born in a manger. Can you imagine royalty being born in a manger? Can you imagine God who has taken on flesh being poor? Yet here is denoted with Jesus' title. At the same time as we're seeing the lowly estate of hum humanity in the person of Jesus, we're also seeing the deity of Christ in his humanity. We're seeing that this Jesus somehow being poor, being hated, being despised, is the same Jesus who is humble, riding on the colt of a donkey. The same Jesus who is uh, hated by the world, yet obedient unto God. Never dealing with sin in himself. Never hating fellow man. Never uh, cursing unrighteously man. Jesus being obedient when all of the odds are stacked against his human flesh. Being beloved of God. Another picture of this Jesus, son of man. He's the son of man, yet he's loved of God? How is it? Hebrews asked the question. Who is he that he would be concerned with man? Well, I would say that it begins with the person of Christ. He's concerned with man because his own son, this God, has become man in the flesh and has reconciled man to God. He's beloved. He's pure. He's holy. He's righteous. God has testified, even leading up to this, that this is the Son in whom I am well pleased. This is the Son of God in whom I am well pleased, and this is the Son of Man in whom I am well pleased. This is the Lamb of God. He hadn't turned these men away, but he simply made a statement about who he is. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What does it mean for Christ to be glorified we talk about it this is meaning at this time though in some instances we see that maybe he was glorified to a certain extent maybe he was worshipped by a few at times what we see now is it is denoted that he will be properly glorified he will be appropriately glorified as according to his person and his natures being man yet without sin, being truly and fully God. When he says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, he is detailing for us uh, and giving to us an insight into what has just happened with the triumphal entry. There has 
been, as it seems, these people are going out, they're, they're getting palm leaves and branches, and they're throwing them down, they're saying these nice things, Hosanna, blessed is he, and they'll soon turn away. They'll soon despise him. He's revealing to us uh, in that he will be appropriately and properly and fully glorified that there was some superficial recognition going on. There was some superficial recognition uh, during this triumphal entry. They were looking at a temporal king. They were looking for a temporal meal and a feast, an inheritance, maybe some wealth for their country. Jesus says the time is coming that he will be glorified. He's telling us all of this that has occurred is but superficial. It's but lip service. This triumphal entry uh, is really not all that he deserved. He deserved much more, yet it was just a facade. Men were not truly believing that this was God. Uh, it was soon to be recognized as a temporal miracle. They would soon forget that this Jesus is the Christ. We know that uh, he would give himself up. He would even be raised from the dead, and some would still not believe. They would be uh, doing a great disservice to God in thinking that he was simply another prophet, a temporal miracle worker. Instead of properly seeing the glorification of Christ in that he will deliver the mark of salvation and everlasting life by going to the cross. When Jesus says, it is time, uh, my hour has come, the man, the son of man is to be glorified. He meant not in the way that you have seen in the streets, not in the way that you have seen from town to town, uh, moment by moment, but we're talking about an everlasting glorification, a recognition of, of miracles that extend beyond the grave, that never end, an hour that is forever. He's talking about the glorification that comes by twofold witness of God the Father and the Holy Spirit being sent upon those who would be true disciples, the pouring out of. This is the glorification of Christ through his death. The glorification of Christ being raised up on that cross as it was so told years before crucifixion had ever been invented. This is the glorification of Christ in his burial that he had to reside in a tomb that was not his own. That he would be shut in this son of God in some rocks. And that he would rise from the dead. And he didn't need some other man to come and do it as Lazarus did. He didn't need an apostle to come say any eloquent words. The Bible uh, is, has given account that the Father, that the Spirit, and that Jesus himself are credited with the resurrection. The glorification of Christ exists here and is detailed and illustrated and even foreshadowed, and that this Christ will raise himself from the dead. A detail of his service as prophet. A detail of his service as priest and as king. And most surely as he is being 
uh, called here by himself the Son of Man, a detail of his existing as an appointed priest and mediator and advocate. All of these are recognition that he has been appointed by the Most High God. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And as I said, if, if this hour is denoted by Christ giving himself as a sacrifice to save men from now and to eternity, how much more so does it detail that if the hour has come and he is saving and he is continuing to save, that he should be worshipped and continually worshipped, that his glory shall never end. This is not an hour literal in which we are to give glory to God as some do with church. To come Sunday or Wednesday and say, it's time to glorify God. The reality is that when Jesus has gone to the cross, the hour has come and is not leaving. It is time for men to repent and to worship. It's time to recognize sin and recognize righteousness in Christ. The hour has come. And then Jesus continues in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Seems pretty simple. In such a detail, we remember that he had created these things that bearing seed, uh, they would bring forth fruit and trees after their own kind. And he's appealing to that uh, notation of creation that we are so familiar with. Presenting himself as a grain. Notice that how important grain was. If you're thinking biblically, uh, I would think that your immediate thought would move from grain to bread, right? Somehow we're going to have grain, and that grain is going to be turned into bread somewhere along the, way, along the way. And I remember that Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. And here he says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, he's denoting that he must die. For him to be the bread of life, he must die. For if it remains alone, if it does not die, it just is there by himself. The very thing that the thief on the cross would tell us, well, if you're truly this Jesus, come down on the cross. Come down from there. Save us and save yourself also. Jesus says here, that's impossible. A grain of wheat cannot simply just come off the cross. It must go into the earth and die. If it dies, it bears much fruit. And here's the truth. Jesus did not die on the cross. He says it here himself. He did not die on the cross that man may happenstance, may take chance at choosing to serve the Messiah. He didn't say, if I be given as this grain and die and go into the earth, now man may choose and may, maybe some will be saved. He said, when I die, I will bear fruit. After my kind, righteous, holy, pure, pleasing before God. Not a choice. Not a possibility a guaranteed reality that when this Christ was raised up and given his life and his blood shed upon Calvary's cross and that when he was buried and then he rose and ascended into heaven, men would rise and also ascend and be present in the glory of God because of Christ. 
because they're no longer sinful man, but they are just like the grain that caused them to be offspring. The fruit after its kind, like Jesus. This is a perfect picture of the Savior that we have. A perfect revelation of the cross before the cross. A perfect illustration for the church and her worship of Christ. The hour has come. And like I said earlier, there is no spiritual dichotomy between the hour has come for Christ to be glorified and this being the day of salvation. Maybe this is that last hour. In fact, this is the only hour. The very hour, the very day that we say is the day of salvation is so because Jesus' hour has come and he is still saving. His sacrifice is still sufficient. Your sin is still deserving of hell. Mine too. Nobody's left out here. Sort of like with these Greek men. He didn't tell them to leave. Everybody needs what Jesus is providing. Jews and Greek alike. Uh, so much so that we all, almost forgot to go back over that. Verse 23 and 24, as these men have approached Jesus, didn't send them away because what he was doing was bringing that saving gospel not to the jews only but as well to the gentiles what a miracle he didn't send them home what he was about to do was able to save to the uttermost and is still to this day it's miraculous what jesus was doing here what he was telling us what he was revealing and what we so much miss it was a testimony that today is the day of salvation the day when we see that jesus is not simply bringing lazarus from the dead this is the hour in which the son of man is lifted up and behold yes the world is going after him because he says if i'm lifted up i will draw all men into myself he is doing just that we see it Quietly, tenderly, Jesus is calling. Oh, sinner, come home. What will we do? We've been presented with the information of Christ. We've been presented not only with the information of a Christ who is able to perform miracles, but a Christ who went to the cross and who him who knew no sin became sin for us. A propitiation. I know this is true know most of you very well with the exception of kirk's brother and i bet he'd do the same thing if somebody in this congregation did something for you you would turn around and find a way to serve them you would some of you are uh professing even now that th that is why you're in the church faithful men and women of god did something for you and you had to do something in return and little did you know you were not doing anything in return. The Lord was saving you. If I came and fixed your flat tire, I, I bet you, I'd just bet anything I could get a meal out of you. Card in the mail. Sometimes I might have caused your flat tire and still got a meal out of you. I don't know, but that, that sort of thing happens. Jesus is calling. And he says, I can take away your sin. And the church looks at Christ on Sunday and Wednesday says 
that was his hour. And the answer is no. His hour is now. Is and was and is to come. His hour is an eternal hour, really, because the hour in which Jesus went to the cross, he went back and saved everybody, and he went forward and saved everybody, and he stayed present and is saving everybody, and he demands that we be obedient and that we be slaves to righteousness. He says, wherever the master goes, so does the servant. Well, let me just appeal to you now. After Jesus went to this cross, he was resurrected, appeared to over 500, and soon thereafter ascended unto heaven. In the presence of God. Now, I will say that none of you, uh, as long as your heart is beating here on earth, know how to get to heaven. But what you can do is be in the very presence of God in service and in prayer and in supplication. That is where our master is. He is seated at the right hand, as Hebrews declares, a, a great majesty on high, reigning with all authority, all jurisdiction. And those whom he has redeemed are called to be in his presence. I will enter your gates with thanksgiving in my heart i will enter your courts with praise david wasn't talking about things that weren't uh that we aren't able to do we're able because he was willing this morning when we consider the christ has gone to the cross to save from sin how could we reject him how can we look at this sacrifice and say not today, Jesus. He said, this is the hour. This is the day of salvation. I am to be glorified. I am to be worshipped. I am to be exalted. Equality with God, not a thing for him to grasp at, the text says. Also, no former comeliness that any man should desire him. If there is a desire in your life for Christ, it is because he is working. It is because you know the reality of the cross. It is because you know without him you stand condemned. That ought to motivate the church. That motivator to go out and build buildings and build other churches or to do this and that, that should simply motivate us first and foremost to worship God. Today, if that's not the reality, we ought to be broken. We ought to be concerned for one another. We ought to uh, be zealous for God to be worshipped. For our brothers and sisters, maybe to know him as we know him. Maybe for the unbeliever to know him as we know him, that this is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The only propitiation. The Lamb, as John said, that takes away the sin of the world. We're not worthy. That's why we sing, Thou art worthy. Instead of I am worthy, thou art worthy. We may not ever have another chance to repent. We may not ever have another chance uh, to believe. The reality is we don't have a chance. If we are able to respond to the gospel, it is because of God's goodness. It is because of Jesus' revelation of himself through his gospel, through his word. If Jesus has been so good to us to reveal 
who he is and what he has done, how much more so shall we worship him for it and shall we proclaim that this is indeed what he has done? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you uh, for our Savior, Jesus the Christ, where we uh, lift his name up that it may be exalted. Lord, that the world may today hear it, that they uh, may know that he is the only way, the only truth, the only life. Lord, that he is uh, all-pleasing to you and a good shepherd. Lord, we just uh, pray that we may continue as long as we live. Lord, not to gain simply head knowledge, but to learn of our Savior, to appreciate him more, Lord, to love him more, Lord, to see the intricacies of his saving work on the cross. Lord, to see uh, the dynamic of a God who became man to reconcile flesh to God. What a wonderful Savior is Jesus, my Lord. May we all proclaim that today, Lord, and tomorrow uh, and until the death of these mortal bodies. Lord, we just thank you. Lord, we pray that you would receive our worship, that you would be well pleased, God, that you would Forgive us of our sins. Lord, for if we were to sit and name them, Lord, we must name them all. When we are to count our many blessings, it is because there have been many sins. And yet Christ is able to cover them all. Lord, we thank you for him. Lord, we ask for your blessing as we fellowship, as we partake of the meal. Uh, Lord, we pray that you receive all the credit, the glory, and the honor uh, that is due your name for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.